On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. At SLRC, they understand your dream to move. Moving up, moving on, moving your body, moving mountains. SLRC can help you find the focus to define your finish line. As a top 10 run shop in America, they use their 25 years of experience to provide custom shoe fit analysis and offer a premium assortment of footwear and workout essentials. Locally owned, locally operated. SLRC is movement inspired. Visit saltlakerunning.com to schedule your shoe fitting today. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Dan Shapiro. You know, the first thing to remember is we're all we're all faking it. Um, when I was uh, working on my book, Hot Seat, the Startup CEO Guidebook, I actually got to talk to Dr. Pauline Rose Clance, who invented something that everybody thinks is called imposter syndrome. And uh, she is, uh, you know, near retirement but going strong, and she uh, sharp as a tack and said, Dan, thanks for making time. Thanks so much for having me, Jess. Okay, so let's do this. Let's have the 30-second elevator pitch on Glowforge for everybody who doesn't know what it is, and then let's let's do the same thing on your career, pretty pretty notable things with Photobucket and selling companies to Google and some of that. You bet. Uh, let me do them in reverse order because okay. then okay. it'll go from start to finish. So I worked at some big companies like uh, Microsoft and Google. I started a company uh, first called Ontella, and then we merged with Photobucket, and that's still going strong today. Uh, I started another company called SparkBuy, which Google acquired uh, after it only existed for six months. Uh, I spent a couple of years at Google running a team for them and then took a leave of absence. I wrote a book called Hot Seat, the Startup CEO Guidebook. I published a game on Kickstarter called Robot Turtles, which was the most backed board game in Kickstarter history and set the record for the most backed board game ever. Wait, I just said that twice. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what, what, and what was the number on that? What did that? What was that number? Uh, we had something like 25,000 backers. My friend Alon Lee um, and uh, Matt Inman, two friends of mine, beat that record with Exploding Kittens a couple years later. But at the time, <laughs> it was the most backed game. Uh, and then... While prototyping parts for that, I wound up with this $11,000 industrial carbon dioxide cutting laser uh, imported straight from the factory in China, installed in my garage. Um, and that led to a whole series of events that led me to create uh, the, this company, Glowforge. We make a 3D laser printer, which uses laser technology to cut and engrave beautiful products out of things like leather and wood and cardboard and paper and fabric and even chocolate. And it's simple enough that kindergartners can and do use it and, and sophisticated enough that engineers and artists and designers use it to go create products. And it starts at under $2,500. So it's something you can put on your desktop at home and use to make beautiful products or art or inspire uh, all sorts of creativity. And you guys have some great videos on the website. I'd encourage everybody to, to go to the website, Glowforge, and, and see some of the amazing stuff that's seen and made. And uh, your Instagram as well has got tons of great creative things here. So um, as, a, uh, as a buyer of a uh, laser cutter, not nearly as sophisticated as yours a number of years ago, uh, I am fascinated with how user-friendly what you've put together is. Can you talk about kind of your your thought process in the way you've done what you've done? 
So if you've used this before, you know this technology was grown out of factory equipment that's been around since, oh gosh, like the late 60s and pretty much unchanged. And that was more or less what I had in my garage. And I've been thinking for a long time um, about the, the privilege that I've had um, in my life and as a creator. Uh, besides just coming from uh, a well-off family and being a white guy who's had a great education and parents who are supportive and everything else, I had an engineering degree. And that meant that I could dream something up and uh, a couple of weeks or months later, build it and maybe even sell it. And that I think we need to be and are moving into a world where that power of creation belongs to everybody. And in the same way that computers moved out of data centers and into desktops and now into pockets, and computers went from a thing that you had to be a programmer to use that now ballerinas and restaurateurs and anybody can use, so too should the ability to create things be something that's available to anyone. So after looking at all the different ways that I could prototype and build parts for my board game, Robot Turtles, I found this one technology that struck me as being uniquely magical for a couple of reasons. First, because it was easy to design for. You can actually design for a laser with a drawing. Now, there isn't a software to do anything with that, but, but I knew that I could, I could find a team to fix that because I spent a lot of time working in software. Second, it actually works in multiple materials. Modern fabrication technology like 3D printers will print in plastic and you just get plastic. And who wants more plastic junk? But making things out of beautiful leather or wood, um, you know, to create a handbag or a wallet, uh, uh, to create furniture or a lamp, that's actually valuable and has a place in your life. And finally, when I saw who was using these tools, the people using 3D printers and, and milling machines and the like were mostly engineers. But the people who are using laser technology in the maker spaces and the like, uh, the people who had access to it were often designers or, or entrepreneurs or people building things that they could create with. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a crazy entrepreneur. I believe that in 20 to 40 years, we're going to have Star Trek replicators. We're going to have machines that sit in our desk and can print anything we want, anytime, where it's needed, when it's needed. And I, I want to create the tip of that iceberg. I want to create the start of a, an economy and a world where it makes more sense to create things where and when they're needed, needed exactly for the purpose they're needed for. Instead of having them done in a factory halfway across the world, loaded onto con, uh, to a container ship and, and put in a warehouse for somebody to buy at retail. Yeah. So you obviously uh, have inspired a number of folks because if I understand, you guys were like the biggest crowdfunding campaign in history with like almost $28 million in orders in 30 days, right? Yeah, I cannot tell you how surprised we were by that. <laughs> it was it was amazing. We had we had our I remember sitting in my office, which was totally unfinished and was like one of two offices in this huge space for 13 of us with a giant industrial milling machine installed that we were using to build prototypes. It was running in the background. And uh, our lead investor, Brad Feld from Foundry Group, was sitting there. And I was there with my co-founder um, and uh, uh, Mark and my co-founder, Tony, were sitting around and talking. And I remember saying, okay, so uh, on the low side, I think you should fire me and shut it all down if I cannot get a million dollars in pre-orders. But what about the high side? And we looked and we're like, well, the best funded 3D printer was 3.5 million and maybe we can do even better than that, but it's such a high price point and nobody crowdfunds things that's expensive. And we came out, we're like, surely we will not sell more than $5 million of these things. 
And then to realize that we blew that away and then we blew away the, you know, every record for dollars on the on the map was just this like, oh, my heavens, what have we done <laughs> in, yeah. in, in a good way, but also a somewhat terrified way. Uh, but I remember us all nodding solemnly and going like five million. Yep, that's that's the most we have to plan for. Sure. So um, there's so many folks that that love that as a model for validation for a product and, and you know, just even startup cash. What's what's one piece of advice you have for other folks who want to have a better crowdfunding campaign than they're planning now? Mm-hmm. Um, be careful. Um, the greatest danger of a crowdfunding campaign is having one that is bigger or smaller than what you plan for. Um, and plenty of folks have fallen prey to that. Here's the, the advice I give for specifically hardware projects that are crowdfunding, which is um, the, the ground is littered with failures. And it looks like they fall into two categories, but it's actually secretly wrong. It looks like there's two categories. A hardware companies that crowdfund and release a terrible product, and hardware companies that crowdfund and fail but without releasing anything. It turns out they're both the same thing. That hardware takes longer to produce than you'd think. And then companies are left with the choice to either release junk or run out of money and fail. And the only solution, the only solutions I know of to that are either build something that's super tractable, like a board game where you know that all the components can be made in one factory and they have a long history of doing it and, you know, very constrained. The board game, the reason my board game is all cardboard pieces is because I got on the phone with the factory while I was still designing it and said, what's easy to make? And they said, stamped cardboard and cards. And I said, great, my whole game is stamped cardboard and cards. Uh, that, that's why Robot Turtles, if you look at it, is stamped cardboard and cards. Um, and uh, and then on the other side, to have investors who will back you through heaven and hell. And, you know, talk about privilege. It was only because I'd done a bunch of startups before and had those connections that I was able to get True Ventures and Foundry Group, who are companies well-known for standing with companies like Fitbit and MakerBot through good times and bad and backing them through to success. And that's not, that's not an option for most companies, unfortunately. Yeah. So um, shifting gears here just a little bit, um, you know, Photo Bucket's such a, a well-known name out there. Tell me about your role there and the story there. So I founded a company in, um, oh gosh, what was it, uh, 2006 called Ontella. And what we were doing was in the era of the Motorola Razor and the Nokia candy bar phone, we would take every picture that you, that you took and immediately upload it to the cloud and sync it to your desktop. Now, this is an area back when phones were called camera phones because it was very special that they had a camera when nobody <laughs> talked about the cloud. And, uh, and this was all sort of mysterious. So, you know, syncing the phone to your desktop was, was kind of black magic. Um, but that was the, the idea that it was based on. And as the iPhone entered into the world, uh, you know, we had these, I remember having this, um, startup call us up and say, Hey, we want you to go build a mobile client for us. And it was a startup that we'd heard a lot about and was growing pretty fast. It was called Facebook. Uh, and ultimately we said, you know, I don't think we're going to build you a great mobile client. And this sounds like something that is destined to be frustrating for both of us. So we turned down Facebook when they asked us to build a mobile <laughs> client for them. Um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, grew the company, had contracts with carriers to pre-install it. But ultimately, we found our biggest partner was a company called Photobucket, which had just been acquired by Fox Interactive. And through this ridiculous deal that to this day, I can't believe ultimately wound up happening, we arranged to uh, basically acquire Photobucket from Fox Interactive for shares, common shares in photo, oh, well, a mixture of shares in Photobucket that we issued. So at the end of the day, uh, sorry, Ontella that we issued. So at the end of the day, Ontella, my company, acquired Photobucket from Fox Interactive 
renamed the company to Photobucket, and that's the company that's uh, that exists today. Um, it, you know, you've got a background in in sort of the world of mergers and acquisitions and trading and everything. This is all brand new to me, and uh, you know, sitting around talking with people about wheeling and dealing with mega corporations. Uh, was just, I, I got to tell you, I was a student on full cram mode. It didn't help that I had twin one and a half year olds at the time we were putting this together. So I remember just trying to stuff everything into my brain that I could to try and figure out how to make this work. And, you know, ultimately the deal came together and uh, and I think it resulted in something that was a really great product. That's awesome. Well, let's do this. I, I have a question about that. Let's take a quick sponsor break and then I'm going to ask my question. All right. I'll sit tight. So just before um, the sponsor break there, Dan, I was telling you I had a question. When you, if you had any advice for other folks who need to cram, you know, you talk about uh, as you're wheeling and dealing and acquiring photo, issuing shares, basically printing your own money to acquire photo bucket and doing all this and, you know, juggling the twin one-year-olds and trying to learn all this. Um, you know, obviously that, that uh, process was successful for you. What advice would you have for other folks who maybe have anxiety about, not knowing something about the space they're in and trying to cram and trying to, to pull it off. You know, the first thing to remember is we're all, we're all faking it. Um, and when I was uh, working on my book, hot seat, the startup CEO guidebook, I actually got to talk to Dr. Pauline Rose Clance, who invented something that everybody thinks is called imposter syndrome. And, uh, she is, uh, you know, near retirement, but going strong. And she, uh, sharp as attack and said, "Uh, uh-uh, no, you got this wrong. It is not called imposter syndrome. Syndrome is a bad thing. Syndrome is a, a series of, of, you know, bad, uh, uh behaviors or, or, uh, manifestations. And I called it imposter phenomenon. And I hate that people rebranded it. Imposter phenomenon was called that because for some people it's terrible, but for some people it is wonderful. Imposter phenomenon is where you feel like you're faking it and you are about to be found out. And the big gotcha, the big, or the big aha that I learned from her is that imposter phenomenon destroys people because they feel like they're fakes and they shut down and they can't make it. And it makes people who feel like they have to work twice as hard. They have to push themselves to the limit because otherwise they're going to be found out. But the big secret is everybody feels this way. She told me that in her initial research, she first thought it was only women who suffered from imposter phenomenon because in her surveys, only women admitted to it. But then she did another survey that was anonymous and discovered it was just as prevalent around men as women. It's just that guys didn't feel like they could cop to it until the survey was anonymous. And that notion that everybody out there feels like they're faking it, and by the way, to some extent is, because nobody knows anything. And there are probably some people who are full of hubris and really think they've got it all, but we're all students in this at one level or another. And understanding and embracing that is the first step to to learning your way into these worlds that you may not have the experience or background to be a part of. And then that, that's the first half of it. The second half of it is knowing where, where the sturdy ground lies and knowing where the swamps are. And they always shift. So at some part of your life, you may feel like your, your, uh, your family and your home life is stable and wonderful and you're supported and work is a nightmare and, and things are constantly changing and, and your home life is what gives you support to go into work. And sometimes it's the reverse and, and something's chaotic at home and you go into work and feel like that stabilizes you. Then the hard times are when you feel like there's swampland everywhere. Those happen too. And then you just find those smaller and smaller patches. So for me with all the chaos of newborn uh, or, or year and a half year old twins, 
me being called upon to do something in terms of sort of mergers and acquisitions that I'd never done before, leading a company that was as big as any company I'd ever led. We're, we're approaching, I think, 40 people at the time. I never led, well, I never led a company before, and this was the biggest our company had ever been. Some of the things that that were steady were really simple, but one thing was at a couple hours every night, and I would sit with the kids while they were falling asleep, and then you know when they were on bottles, I'd be feeding them. Afterwards, I'd just sit quietly in their room and work on my computer. And having a couple of hours every night that were focus time, when I knew there were no meetings, no calls, no nothing, that was what helped me grow and scale. And that was where I had room carved out for me to become, uh, for me to improve and to grow. Uh, and and without that, I, I don't know where I could have possibly shoehorned it in. Um, at other times in my life, it's been other things. But knowing knowing what you can count on right now and knowing that it's going to change because you know, then the kids get a little older and I don't know, maybe, you know, the schedule changes, you don't have that and you have to find it somewhere else. But trying to find the pieces of your life that you can hold that you can rely on, so that you can use those to invest in the pieces that are unsteady. That's, that's to me how you build that process of growth and, uh, and manage to juggle those, those elements. Yeah, I love it. So tell me this, um, you've gone on to, you know, companies since then, and obviously Glowforge is, is doing extremely well. Um, when you think about your own, you know, growing of leaders within your own organizations or mentorship or coaching or whatever you call it, um, how have you brought that into helping your own staff calm down and realize everybody's going through that too and to just get, you know, just to focus on results or, or how to handle it themselves? I don't know that I'm great at it, but I'll tell you some of the, well, I'll tell you one of the things that to me is most important which is, um, I think about it, it, it came out of a conversation about what are the hours that we expect and what's the, what's the work that we expect from people at Glowforge. And that led to this principle that I think is really important, which is to have a really common, a, a really small set of common expectations. So our common expectations is that everybody's here from 10 to five most days. And so there's a time when we can overlap, a time when we can schedule meetings and interviews and find each other and collaborate. But that even though every job is much bigger than that 10 to five, People set their own rules and their own guidelines for how to use the rest of their time. So we've got folks here who are in the office at 5 a.m. and crank straight through and then leave it or not 5 a.m., but maybe six or seven and then crank through and, and leave on the dot. We've got folks who stay late. We've got people who will sit on the at the computer for four or eight hours on a weekend, and we've got folks who turn off. We've got folks who are logging on at night and cranking through late and folks who don't. And, you know, personally, I tend to get that great sort of uninterrupted thought time late at night. I tend to be very available via, you know, cell phone and, and messages and such most of the rest of the time. And then uh, Friday night, uh, we celebrate Sabbath. I turn off all work stuff. I don't turn off all, all uh, electricity, but uh, no work, anything. So everybody knows that from the time I leave Friday until Saturday evening, I am unavailable for anything, including emergencies, uh, which has been exciting at times. Uh, when I, when, when Saturday night I turn on my phone and go, Oh no, there's 14 missed calls. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but everybody knows that and can plan around it. And so telling everybody, look, make your steady ground, communicate that and tell me what works for, tell everybody what works for you. And then we'll work within that set of shared expectations and individual limits, um, so that we can all be really effective, get lots done, but also feel like, there's, it's a cliche, but there's that balance between work and life and that people have room for each. Yeah. What do you feel like the advantages are by, by approaching it that way? I think it's been a part of us building a culture that welcomes folks of different backgrounds, of different, um, 
uh, different mindsets and working styles. I'm really proud of the fact our company is uh, about half women, about 20% people from backgrounds traditionally underrepresented in tech. And having, th there's a number of things we've done to do that, but having a uh, a place of giving people the room they need to be awesome, but also to be themselves is, I think, a core element of that. I think it makes people more successful, but I also think it makes people um, happier and it helps us build the kind of um, the kind of team that we want, which is which is really, you know, the reason that's so important to us is because this product is easy enough for anyone to use. It's simple enough for anyone to use. And our mission is to bring it to anyone and everyone. Uh, and to make it as affordable as we can and as easy to use as we can. And for us to succeed at that, we have to build a company that looks like our customers. We don't want to build the typical tech company of all uh, white guys with engineering backgrounds. Um, we want to build a company that's as diverse as the folks we help to serve because that's how we're going to become that kind of successful. Um, also because it's the right thing to do. And so, uh, so that approach of trying to make room for people of all different, you know, life stages and priorities and backgrounds to be happy and successful and effective um, helps us as a company be happy, successful and effective. Love it. Well, this is a great place to end for, for part one of the interview. Uh, everybody, please tune back in for part two. We're going to be asking Dan some more questions about inventing the future. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York, and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or four hundred million dollars. Anyways, he uh, he started a new company called BlipBillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com.